Welcome to another episode of the Evolution Gaming Exchange. Today we'll be discussing the challenges of creating a gaming studio featuring Kaiser Grafström. Hi everyone, this is Chris Bennett here, the Knowledge Managing Director here at Evolution. We're committed to doing recruitment in a different way that adds value to both our clients and candidates by providing you with amazing speakers and leading edge discussions on what's going on in the tech scene at the moment. There are three reasons why you should contact me. If you would like to speak on a future podcast, if you are interested in hiring awesome tech data, product or gaming freelancers for your business, or if you are looking for an exciting new organization to work with, please get in touch. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope to hear from you soon. Please enjoy the rest of the podcast. Uh, so if we could start with some intros. Stella, do you want to let people know who you are? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, my name is Stella Vaca, and I'm co-founder and CEO of Silk Road Studios, a new startup uh, game development studio based in Copenhagen, Denmark. We are currently working on our first title, um, a third-person action adventure with RPG elements for PC and consoles. Um, a little bit about me, I come from a purely design background and I have a background in product, UX, service design until I finally gone into game dev. And now uh, what I'm trying to do is support my team to make the awesome games that I know that they can make. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> That's me. Yeah. Anna, do you want to go next? Sure. Uh, so my name is Anna Haugvagenelius. Uh, I run a small indie company called Valiant Game Studio, uh, based in Stockholm, Sweden. Uh, we're currently working on a wholesome and approachable car battler slash deck builder called the Creature Kind. Uh, so you uh, recruit monsters to your cause instead of killing them. And looking for funding, so I'm probably going to mention it again during this this podcast. Uh, I'm a little bit uh, jack of all trades, so I do design, programming, uh, stuff like that. Um, but I've done a little bit of everything during my career. Um, I've almost 12 years uh, working with games and like seven as an indie. So, yeah. Very cool. Radu? Uh, hi, I'm Radu. I'm one of the four co founders of Empty Box. We are based in Olborg, Denmark, and we're currently working on Tower of Sins. Uh, Tower Sins is a metroidvania that tries to combine itself with the boss rush game. And we are currently looking for funding as well. My background is programming. We all, all the four co-founders are programmers at MTVOX. And our biggest struggle so far has been how to find different talent that we can bring into the company. So we diversify a little bit, having four programmers decide on everything related to design and art. It's a bit too much. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, Kaisa. Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Kaisa Grafström. Um, I'm, uh, I, I would call myself a freelancing uh, CFO. I've been working in the industry for almost 15 years in different companies and I've been freelancing for the last three years um, and at the moment I'm working mainly with uh, Lurkit um, and I'm also setting up an accounting firm that's going to be uh, focused on gaming companies um, so that's kind of what I do I'm in Stockholm Sweden awesome Brilliant. Right, so let's get to um, the first question slash discussion point, which comes from Stella, uh, which is what should we focus on to attract investors? This is a very meaty question, but uh, Stella, do you want to give uh, some insight why that particularly affects you? Uh, yeah, um, so um, Silk Road Studios have been officially running for the past two years. In this, uh, in our life, uh, we have been supported by the Danish Film Institute and Nino Founder, which are both soft grants. So uh, we are very fortunate that we have been uh, running so uh, far. Uh, but since we want to scale up the company, uh, I, we think it's time that we address uh, investors and publishers. Uh, but my question is focused more on investor because this, there's less visibility in approaching investment um, 
you know, from a business perspective, as the game industry is more passion driven and, you know, more artistic. So it's very hard to communicate many times with investors and what they need. Um, so coming from that, I want to learn how I can build my team and I can build my company's credibility in the sense that it's it seems like a good investment for an investor and we onboard an appropriate partner for us and for them, of course, uh, so we can work together towards common goals. Uh, I would love to hear Radu's thoughts because I think he's kind of like a similar yeah, experience with me. <laughs> we're in a very similar situation because yeah. we got funded by DFI as well. And that's what... Uh, so far has been paying our art team that we're working with and uh, our music composer but that money is about to run out so we really need to find further investment as well and that's something that we focused on for about half a year now even above development uh, but when it comes to investors investors finding funding through just an investor, I don't have that much experience actually. We have tried to stay clear as much as we can from investors and just search for publishers, game funds, or other types of funding like DFI. Would you mind if I asked why would you prefer going for inv why did you stay clear from investors? Is it something that you know it was uh, I don't know not scary but you know you didn't want or it was it some perception that led to that decision we currently view equity investment as one of the last options for investments for us we want to keep control of as much of the company as possible fair yeah and yeah, we've been really focusing on publishers and also on game funds. I have started to collect a list of all the game funds that I can find that act kind of like publishers, but they give you more artistic freedom and they don't help you with the marketing and all of that publisher stuff. I can jump. Should I jump in? Okay. Yeah, I was just about to jump in. Uh, I can jump in with some of my experience because um, I have angel investors, so I've invested in Valiant. Uh, so I have, and right now I'm talking more to publishers, and I can probably uh, talk about why. But just to to start off uh, on the investment part, um, so what I felt like early on is that it's nice to sort of build a network and like build uh, credibility in a company through having sort of quote-unquote smart money, uh, which is, uh, even though this is still a very small company, it's nice to have stakeholders that really actually know the industry. Like, you can bring them on the board, you can have them in the board of, um, well, both both the board of advisors, but also an actual, you know, board, um, execu executive board. Uh, so, like, the funding investors were sort of part of building that and sort of building it a little bit as a traditional tech startup rather than a more regular indie company. Um, and sure, you give up some uh, control of your company, but like like I said, like if it's smart money, then you also bring on good people that can help you, uh, you know, increase your chances of success. So it's it's not for everyone. I wouldn't say that it's a one size fits all, but like if you're willing to give some equity in your company, then you can also gain a lot of, a lot of knowledge with it. Um, but to speak to sort of how to attract investors, uh, so. At this point in time, I only talk to angel investors, which is like individuals rather than, you know, VCs, larger companies. Um, and of course, it's a big topic, but like m even more than when you talk to publishers, like the team and your plan for like a longer period of time is really what's going to get them on your side. Because like the actual game, like especially if you talk to people who haven't invested in games before, they might not understand your game, like your vision for a specific title, but they might understand that. I don't know, we make VR games or we make, you know, XR, I don't know, we, or blockchain or whatever. Like if you use buzzwords, like they're probably going to like, oh, we want to jump on this. Or if you have like, okay, we're going to make story heavy games for this specific target and there's some markets. Like you talk more about your, your strategies rather than individual titles. 
and also you talk about, and this is the team that's going to make it, and we have the talent on board. Um, because like you kind of need to give them FOMO a little bit, like this is the plan, but you also need to quench like their um, like the fear of, oh, but we don't trust these people. How can we know that they will actually do this? So like make them trust you and your team and also like feel like this plan is, um, you know, something they want to be part of. That's at least what worked for me. <laughs> I can't say that we're going to work for everyone, but that's sort of the, the knowledge that I gained along the way. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of, um, uh, a lot of things that I have found through research and, you know, hearing other people talk about this issue. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Um, a lot of people that have got investment in their game company have really encouraged me to have a track record to focus on a few smaller projects that I can get out before the main project. So when I am talking to investors, I can actually show them something that was successful or at least not a complete failure from my past. I mean, I think that goes for any funding. I think, yeah, you're probably right, like especially for uh, sort of equity investors, like having a track record and having the metrics to show that you have traction, like you have people on board. Because especially, like I said, if they don't know games that well, like seeing numbers, that's always going to be convincing because they might not understand if this game is going to be a, a, no, a flop or a hit, but they can see, okay, you have slowly gained a reputation and like you can do this. So that's probably a very good idea, I'd say. Uh, whereas like a publisher might say, okay, this, I can see from your prototype that this game is going to do well, then it could be your first game. So it's, even though it's good to have good, a good track record with a publisher as well, I think it's even better with a, an investor. Yeah. Kai, okay, so, so obviously as a freelance CFO for indie studios, I imagine you have conversations with investors and publishers alike. Is there anything that stands out that investors are always looking for? I think that, I mean, even if you're looking at, if you're looking at investors that have a lot of experience from the gaming in industry, like Anna was talking about, if you look at angel investors or people with a lot of experience, I think that they are probably going to look at, I mean, they have their specific metrics that they look at and they that they feel that they uh, that can identify what they would think a successful game is or something like that. And I think that um, what you should, should focus on is probably depending on what kind of investor you are talking to. So an investor that is more focused and have more experience from the gaming industry will look at some things and other types of investors will will look at other things. But I think that one common uh, thing is definitely, like you said, another team. I think that's something that everyone will look at and, and just being able to show the experience of the team and and uh, because the team is 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 the ones they are the ones who are going to build the game or the or build this project that you're working on. So I think that's definitely going to be one of the most important things that an investor is going to look at. And if you are able to show that you've actually I don't know if you build a prototype or if you're able to show some kind of metrics from the 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 game that you're actually building and. That's, of course, really good. Um, I think that, I mean, from my perspective, I think that it's always good if you can, like, I mean, you're, you're going to have your uh, roadmap and you're going to have your milestones or whatever. If you can actually kind of connect that with some kind of financial plan to just to show that just in your current state, like, What's your runway? How far are you going to reach with that runway? And if you're looking into the future, just making sure that you kind of connect that with the runway. And also, depending on how big of the of an investment that you're looking for, that you can actually show how long that investment will last and what kind of milestone you will uh, achieve during that time. That's something that will, will really help you, I think, when you talk to investors and also publishers. Yeah. So with with a focus on the team, if Radu's got 
mostly developers. And I imagine that dive, <laughs> I know we'll get to that, but diversifying is probably one of the first steps he would need to make to be attractive to an investor at this point. Yeah, definitely. Any other comments on attracting investors, guys? No? Fair? Okay, so we can just jump straight into Radu's one as it's, uh, you know, just been brought up. So how can we, um, sorry, challenges with talent diversity when scaling for the first time? So obviously, Radu, if you want to give some context more so than you've already done. Yeah, of course. I mean, like I said in the intro, we are four programmers that started a company and it has been quite difficult as of late, like after we have developed everything code-wise that we needed for our prototype, we didn't really have anything else to do ourselves as programmers. So we had to switch our focus to just trying to find some artists, trying to find some music people to add into the team. And it seems like geographical bounds have been the biggest problem. It's very hard uh, here in Olberg to find anybody that uh, specializes in composing music for games or composing uh, sound effects, artists even. And yeah, it's, if I can add a little bit to that question is, how do you decide whether you want to search locally for somebody that can work in person or only to find somebody remotely that could even be on the other side of the world? So then the time zones conflict as well. Yeah, I think that's, um, I, I think that you know, post COVID we've seen more and more that like it's possible or <laughs> started during the pandemic but it's uh, still now like we can see that people can work uh, in different time zones and you know work remotely uh, quite successfully but then again like i think there's so much power in working together like locally as well and like being able to see each other in the office and so on so i completely understand you would want to find one someone somewhat locally that can at least travel to meet you on a regular basis um but like i think if you're really struggling and you need art for example which is kind of essential for a game um you should at least in my opinion maybe try and look other places as well so like um for some context for example for this game that i'm working on right now i say i but it's really we but i'm working with freelancers uh so we don't really sit in the same office working on this game uh and it's so far worked quite well so it's more like ordering batches of art of course this depends on what you're making um but i think that it's possible to make games in different ways like you you don't have to have the traditional, everyone is in the same office all the time. Like it's also possible to explore, like uh, working remotely and like working with freelancers and so on. I mean, whatever it takes to to make the game essentially, I think. Um, yeah, I feel I mean, like, uh, oh. oh, sorry, <laughs> go ahead. I mean, that's exactly what we have been doing so far. We are working with an art studio that's spread all over the world. And yeah, so far the biggest problem was the fact that we get updates about our art at two in the morning. All right. And scheduling meetings in order to discuss more than just sending messages over Discord. Yeah, that, that's very difficult as well. Yeah. Is there a reason that you chose that specific art studio that is based all over the world because there are European alternatives that you could have chosen. What was the, you know, the ultimate factor that made you choose them? Uh, we have searched for quite a few different ones and we just looked at the art style that they can produce. So that was the biggest reason. We didn't, we didn't think that the fact that it's based all over the world is going to cause any problems or yeah, anything like that in the future. What about you, Stella? What's your setup like? Uh, in which of the questions? <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, I mean, for us, we have also been working with freelancers a lot, especially for art, uh, because our core group is systems designers and, pro and one programmer, and we are two designers, um, and we have one sound engineer, and other people just come and go as, you know, uh, some friends are also creatives, and they want to, you know, scratch that itch, and we're very fortunate for them. Um, but we have been working with uh, art freelancers and we found them through ArtStation. We didn't work with studios because studios tend to take huge, um, how do you say, like payouts uh, because they, they are more organized or they uh, prompt you to the specific uh, artist that you know fits your studio and they they charge for the whole management thing. And we didn't feel like starting up a studio, like for us starting as a studio, it would be wise to spend our money that way. So we tried basically to reach the V-slice milestone however we could. Um, so that meant, we. I think that we at now it's around eight or nine different artists that have worked on our, on our project and it was very hard to bridge all the art styles together and make them you know make it seem coherent but as i said it's the v-slice milestone that is you know your minimum thing to pitch to you know to have a more stable work environment so that was our goal so in your question of how do you decide if you want to work locally or you know globally or how you want your team to be I would say, what's your goal? Because if you want to build a studio there, then find, an, if, I don't know, an amazing person and, you know, grab onto them. But if you want to reach a specific milestone so you can scale up like us, then I would say just do whatever it takes to reach that milestone. Um, yeah, it's, it, it's, very, it's very hard. Um, and some people won't fit, but art is the easiest thing to outsource because it's just a list of things. You just need to figure out the list of things that need to be done, give it to someone, and then it just hopefully <laughs> they'll just get, do it in one batch. Hopefully. <laughs> and you like it and you work with it. Um, I mean, I, yeah. I just want to add on that. I think I definitely agree. And like, Sometimes you have like, you know exactly what the game is going to look like and everything fits together. And like you have this vision of everything, how all the piece, puzzle pieces will come together. And then the art is very important. And then maybe working with a studio on the other side of the world or whatever might be the necessary evil to like bring that idea to life. Uh, and then you have to sort of work around that and try to find workflows. I, I can't like say how to do it, but like it's probably work around it somehow. But like, then again, like, uh, just like I say, Stella, like if it's to, uh, the goal of the company to grow as well, like long-term, and especially if you want to build maybe a good company culture locally, like have a great company, you know, uh, everyone comes into the office and has a good time. Then maybe the art style is less important and building the company long-term is more important than maybe, yeah, then you can look locally and try to attract people, maybe even help people relocate to your area. If you find someone in Sweden or Norway or whatever, like help them move to, to Denmark. Um, so you can sort of attract them and keep them long term, uh, and but that that's you know might be a little bit more expensive and like, but it might be a worth worthy investment if if the company is the focus rather than this specific title. I don't th I don't know if there's any right or wrong, but I think it's it depends on where you sort of want to be in. I don't know five five yeah. ten years. Well, yeah, I, I, mean, I think it's also something. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. I have, I have no, but I think that it's also like there are so many opportunities now to kind of find people that want to work remote, and I think that it's also a great way of kind of testing people and seeing, uh, and seeing. I don't know if it comes to art, maybe just seeing what kind of art style works and what kind of person that you that you are looking for, um, because I mean, there it comes like if you are looking to kind of grow your studio, there's. I mean, it, it takes a long time to find the right talent and maybe you want to find someone that fits with your the culture that you want to build in your studio. And so there's so many things that you might want to think about when you hire people because that's much more long-term. So I think that it, what you said, Stella, there about, like you said, about building your studio or just getting the job done, that's like a really important thing just to think about before you um, make these decisions. 
because it, it's two completely different things. And I think that because there are so many opportunities with remote people and freelancing artists or or whatever, I think that if you can be flexible on, I don't know, maybe sometimes you have to take a meeting at midnight, <laughs> but it will be worth it because you will get the things done. I think that you might have to be just a little bit flexible there. Yeah, I mean, for us, we didn't work. Uh, we also worked the weekends because one of our artists was in another. Uh, he was in Iran, so his weekend was actually Thursday, Friday, and his work days were Saturday, Sunday until Wednesday. So we had to work also weekends because he worked weekends. Um, but we actually uh, uh, we wanted both. We wanted both the job done and to build a studio. And from the many people that, you know, <laughs> filled the, we had two positions, like it was environment artist and character artist, but many people passed through those positions because we had to find the right fit. And we always recruited craftsmanship and culture. That's, and in the end, if two people matched in craftsmanship, but maybe they had slightly different styles, but equally, you know, beautiful and awesome, then the culture made the difference. And that played a huge role for us because actually one of them stayed and he's part of the team now. Um, Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Although remote for now. <laughs> Is that yeah, a long-term plan to move him? I don't think he would like that. I think he would like to travel the world. <laughs> He's from, uh, actually, we were very fortunate because one of our first hires was a, an artist from France from a specific school. I don't remember which one. And basically, as soon as he couldn't work with us anymore because his uh, university had, he had to do something with university, he had to finish, he had to do his thesis, he uh, referenced us to his one of his friends, colleagues in the university. So we we kind of recruited the whole class <laughs> from that university <laughs> gradually. <laughs> yeah, uh, France made makes amazing artists. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, uh, Kaisa, do you have much experience working with uh, outsourcing studios and the? price differences between that and also um, individual freelancers? And have you noticed the difference between success rates between the two? Oh, I mean, we had, uh, where I used to work before, we had a really long-term relationship with um, Art Studio. Um, and they they were really, really good, and they—I mean—they almost became like employees. Actually, they became—they—they they became like a, a second team, but they were like remote, and they were somewhere else. And we went to visit them, and and we had like a really good relationship, and that worked really well. Um, I've also experienced times when it hasn't worked that well, and I mean, the benefits of that is that it's to be kind of a little bit harsh maybe, but it's easier to end that kind of relationship if you have, if it's a freelancing freelancer or, or an external studio that you're working with um, instead of when you have employees. <laughs> um, so in that way, of course, it's, it's more flexible and you can, um, it gives you more freedom uh, to do that, of course. But I mean, I've had a lot of good experience with them. Um, so I think it's I think it's just uh, I mean you have to uh, give it some time and make sure that you find the right people. But I think you can find great people that you work with remotely. Right. I think an, uh, another thing when it comes to kind of uh, uh, looking for talent and and hiring people to your team, um, one thing that I've seen a couple of times is that. When you look at it, when you look at your plan and you look at what kind of uh, talent you need for your team, I think that um, you might think that you need uh, certain types of of people. But then I think it's really good if you just take a step back and you look at your plan over and over again, and maybe get some input from external people, and you have like different people kind of discussing the plan because you could end up with actually hiring different types of talent. So it might be not 
it, it might not be the things that you're looking for um, when you sit down with your plan the first time. So I think it's really good just to have a look at that and, and bring in some other input than just, I don't know, the, the, the core team and just have other people look at your plan because you could, you could end up um, looking for other types of talent. Very cool. I don't know if someone else experienced that, but I've seen it a couple of times at least. Yeah, but I mean, I'm thinking just like with the culture thing that we mentioned before, I think if you find sort of this is the right person for this company, but technically we're not looking for this position right now, it might still be a good hire like long term because you're building the company culture. Like if you want I don't know, diversity in your, your team or whatever it might be, like you might want to bring in someone with a specific experience or mindset or background. Um, so even though it might be, you might, even though you thought it would be a little bit too early, quote unquote, to hire this person, it might still be worth it in the long run. So definitely agree. But of course, sometimes you can bring in a consultant as well, short term, if you want that sort of experience, but don't have time or can't give them enough to do a full time. Uh, so I think that that's, that's a very good place where you can have a consultant, like coming in, like giving their two cents and like helping you, uh, get to success earlier than you, you might've initially thought that you uh, you need it, so to speak, or like you might not have thought that you needed that person yet, but can take in them part time. Speaking on brokering contracts within freelancing and gaming, one of the other benefits there is that you don't need them full. You don't have to have them full time. If you hire somebody, you most of the time on a full time contract, it's forty hours a week. You know what I mean? But with freelancers, you can kind of like dictate the amount of hours that you need them in the contract for that week so you can save costs there on a long-term basis as well i mean Anna, i know that you pick up like gigs here or there on like short-term long-term and you know, different varying like hours per week as well exactly so like uh just right now for example i'm doing i'm just helping out with a prototype basically for a game uh, so of course they can't hire someone like full time to work just on a prototype because literally it's, they need 50 hours. So I'm going to work with them 50 hours. You can't hire someone for that because it's not even two weeks. Uh, so, so that's why like, yeah, taking a consultant, I'm going to help you out. Um, and then I'm out again. So that's a perfect, I think, uh, perfect place to put a, a consultant and you, you will save so much money on it. Yeah. Any more points on uh, talent diversity or diversifying the talent pool that you have internally? Cool, right, so Anna, funding options outside of investors slash publishers. You want to go into that one? Sure, I mean, yeah, we we touched upon both of them, uh, those two, uh, publishers and investors, but of course we also said that there are other things like funds and, and so on. So uh, it would just be cool to discuss what other options there are there. Um, like especially different countries, like what what available tools do we have to to reach access? Um, so yeah, that's I don't have a question. It's more like let's talk about it. What are the yeah. upsides and, and the downsides of each option? Uh, so I think you both had um, not investment, but like um, fund, yeah. I suppose. Yeah. yeah. Could you talk a little bit about that? Maybe Stella, if you start. Yeah. Um, well, the, I think that the Danish Film Institute is the only uh, Danish state fund for games, um, and they fund pre-production, two phases, and then production and the launch. I'm not sure if they have a post-launch phase, uh, but they are meant to fund cultural games, um, you know, indie studios to start up. Um, yeah, so the pre-production includes the V-slice and then production, you have a production plan and you, you follow up on your V-slice and make it bigger, basically. And then you have a budget for marketing for launch and stuff. Um, so that's what we got. We have gotten uh, the two first pre-production um, funds. And then the other fund that we got, it's not games related, it's business and startup related. Um, so we were very lucky about that. So if they're very strict about promoting Danish ideals and, uh, you know, helping Danish economy to grow. So if you manage to frame a gaming startup that way, then you're golden, then you can get it. And as I said, it's, it's a maximum three person salary for a year, which is amazing. 
um, yes, uh, plus some some change for other stuff, maybe hardware, maybe freelancing, you know, some other help. Uh, but also, uh, there are some European programs. Uh, we have been part of the Horizon Euro program, the I th the accelerator one, which is for deep tech and AI. Uh, because we are ba we based it on an AI solution that we built for our game, um, but it's a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> Can you hear me now? Yeah, you back. I cut off a little bit. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it happens. I don't know why. <laughs> I'm next to the modem. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, what where did I cut off? Uh, Horizon Europe, not not game specific, but again innovation and entrepreneurship, and basically it covers academic knowledge and research applied in uh, business and how you can profit from that to build a stronger Europe. Basically, there's also a Europe Media Strand, uh, but you have to have a. I think it's it focuses on storytelling games developed in Europe, but you have to have a track record of at least one um, game. Yes. Um, I think, uh, and then there are like, you know, smaller uh, things like Unity for Humanity from Unity, if you are developing with Unity. Uh, Mega Grants, if you're developing with Unreal. Um, what else? Crowdfunding, everyone loves and hates at the same time. <laughs> uh, I cannot think of anything else. But the Danish Film Institute for us was a huge deal. I mean, it's the reason that we actually founded the company because before we got money, there was no reason for us to fund the company because you have to do a whole bunch of things that you don't want to do while you're developing a game because we are game developers. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I don't think we have the same in Sweden, so I'm very jealous. <laughs> We have some grants, but it's not really easy to get because they're more like for film and theater and stuff. So, uh, Southern Sweden has some accelerators, incubators, and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, and uh, we have some tech stuff as well. So, uh, there are some incubators. Like, th there's not nothing, but uh, yeah. I think there's not that much state funded. Um, there's some, but it's. You should see the the budget that France gets from EU. The the budget from everyone else is nothing. France gets, I think, I don't know, nine billion or something. Wow, it's, it's amazing. It's in the report that EU, you know, EU funds all the state grants for gaming, and how much each country. I have a whole brochure about this <laughs> and how much each country gets, and France has it has it together. <laughs> so many grants. But but just so. Just for clarification, Anna, you said that Sweden don't have anywhere near as much as clearly Denmark do. But what have you personally experienced yourself? Just for um, anyone that's listening, potentially that based in Sweden would be looking into getting themselves. The only one that I'm aware of that takes, like that's more like state funded ish, uh, that takes application from games is uh, Kulturbryggan. Uh, so there's sort of a culture, you know, yeah. media grant-ish. That's the only one that I'm aware of. Um, but there are like, there's also Vinova, for example, which is more like for general like innovation stuff. And you might be able to convince them. But like all of these are like, if you are very good at writing applications, you might get lucky, but it's not for games necessarily. Um, so, and there are probably a couple of others that I'm forgetting right now. Um, but I think that we just have, a couple of more steps um, to really get into, you know, the the nice rooms in Sweden as you know, as game developers, because most of these grants don't really, you know, take applications from us yet. It's my perceptive uh, perception as well, um, at least. Although not a grant, I am part of an accelerator program which is called Tech Nordic Advocates, which empowers female founders of startups of tech female uh, in the tech sector. So I think they have three phases in their accelerator program. And the third phase, they have their own uh, panel of investors that you pitch to. They're not games investors, but 
it could potentially lead to funding. And the first accelerator is starting up, the second accelerator is scaling up, and then the third is pitching to investors. So although not a fund, it's still knowledge that you they give you and support and maybe network. Yeah, so, so that we have a little bit of in Sweden, so like incubators and accelerator, accelerators, yeah. they're really quite good uh, from yeah. my perspective. So we have, um, like both in Stockholm, we have all around Sweden, different cities have their own sort of hubs with incubators sort of and accelerators as well. Uh, and there are also some international that I know, of, for example, the Baltic Explorers, um, which is sort of a Baltic network, uh, that's sort of an accelerator that I, for example, have gone to both UGC and uh, Gamescom with. So you can get stuff like that as well to just uh, maybe not actual investment into the company in any way, or like it's not a fund, but you can still get um, you know, access to events and so on through them. So uh, that's definitely worth looking into as well as an, a small indie developer from the Nordic region. Very cool. Radu, you said that you had a list of stuff that you were looking yes. into as well. I know Stella yeah, I, named like 19,000 things there, but did <laughs> have you got any extras? <laughs> I have a list of stuff that is outside of the Nordic region, so that's that's a bit different. I found out that there are BFI-like funds that are government-funded and EU-funded, if you go all the way to the source, in other countries in Europe that you can apply to no matter where your company resides in. Uh, currently, we are applying for a Polish fund that's called the Digital Dragons, and they have a and they have a pitching competition, and the top I don't know how many people get into this. I guess it is an incubator in the end, but they also get some funding, and they also get access to a gigantic network of publishers from Central and Eastern Europe and uh, investors that focus on game development. And yeah, I mean, global top round is something similar. Yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to say, that global <laughs> top round is something similar as well, but it's not uh, government funded. Mm. Yeah. And also we have been looking at game funds that, uh, like I said, they act like in like publishers, but without helping you with the publishing stuff. They just invest into the project and yeah, they take the money exactly like the publishers do. We have been looking into that quite a bit as well, like the indie game fund or I don't have the list open right now, but yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, funds like this. And like, uh, you said before, also the Unreal Fund, the Unity Funds, those are extremely useful. Yeah, and for female funder, founders, there's Wings, for example, as well, and a couple of others. So yeah, Kaisa, what experience do you have with all of these thousands <laughs> that have just been presented? I doubt that you've worked with all of them, but from your experience working with some of the startups you've been in and some conversations from East Sweden game, what kind of what gets brought up yeah. basically? I mean, I've heard I have not heard about all of them these that you brought up <laughs> now. I'm very impressed. Uh, 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 over the research that you guys have been doing. Um, I guess you should just publish this somewhere so everyone can <laughs> uh, uh, know this. Uh, but um, yeah, I have, like, I've been working mostly with Swedish companies and and uh, I feel that there are not that many uh, options. Like, if you want to kind of fund your game or your studio. Um, I know that, for example, and I mean, I I guess that you could also like apply for loans and stuff. Like in Sweden, we have uh, Almi, which is uh, state funded. They do loans and they do uh, investments as well. Uh, I'm not sure how easy it is to get a loan if you're like a new studio, maybe. Um, but that's one option, of course. Um, and I mean, we have, I, I don't know if it's even worth mentioning, but there is like an R&D tax relief thing, um, but 
I have experience in applying to this. This is you apply um, kind of to the Swedish tax authorities, and then they give you a discount on the social fees and everything. But but it's um, it, from my experience, it's very hard to get that. I mean, they need they they ask for a lot of documentation, and uh, and it, it's very kind of random who uh, gets. Approved. I hope the tax authorities don't go after me. <laughs> experience. Um, so, and it's not like it, it could be a good amount, um, but it's it's kind of difficult to get that one. I know that um, I went to to Montreal to Canada once, and uh, because we were setting up a company there, and they have uh excellent tax reliefs uh, when it comes to like culture and gaming and stuff like that if you want to set up a company there and it was incredible like the the amount of help that you can get and 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 uh i i, I don't remember exactly how much it was but it was a really significant amount that you could get uh, from the tax authorities there and unfortunately we don't have that here yet I hope That's so. That's why lots of gaming back. studios are based in Montreal. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I mean, other ways of funding as your um, studio, and as you know, is doing like white work for hire while you're uh, developing your game. But yeah. I guess that yeah, <laughs> that comes with challenges as well, kind of time management and. I don't know, balancing the time that you do work higher with the time that you put into developing your own game. That must be super hard. For sure. So uh, just speaking a little bit on that, I mean, I see it as partially an investment as well, like investment as in investment into the knowledge in a company. So like I preferably try to keep, when I consult for other companies, I try to uh, stick to uh, job when I when I can choose to stick to jobs that I, like will also improve my own skills as a game developer. So like I might not work on games that I'm not interested in, or you know uh, do game design that won't be applicable to future games, or that I don't see being applicable to future games stuff like that. So like uh, sure it's it's a way to fund the company uh, and it can really keep you alive and keep you can keep you afloat while you're developing. Uh, but since it's also time away from your own projects, I see it as quite important to also. Uh, work on things that will be beneficial in the long run, because otherwise you, like, like, like you said, you can't take a loan. Otherwise, like you can have dumb money <laughs> and like just just get money. But I see it as when you can work as a consultant uh, or do outsourcing, um, it has other benefits as well uh, if you take the right ones. So I, I'd say that, that that can be a very good way to to sustain yourself as well. I mean, also, it depends on what you want to do with the funding that you get. For example, if you want employees or co-founders or stuff like that, then you can maybe not need funding, but uh, promised rev share or equity or, you know, stuff like that. Um, and then you don't need the funding to build the prototype or the thing that will get you the funding. Of course. Uh, I guess we can also mention like when you're a little bit further along in your journey, like you can actually, you know, sell your company, which is not technically, you know, getting funding, but it's a way to sort of being able to focus on what you want to do and like only make your games and like have someone else take care of the rest. Uh, and I know that that's a little bit of a touchy subject and not everyone, some people really want to be independent, uh, but it's a good way. It's it's a thing to keep in mind, I think, for all indies that it's it can be. Uh, to be part of another, like a larger context can be really beneficial to you as well, depending on who you are and what you want to do. I mean, you can always buy it back. Yeah, if you have the money. <laughs> <laughs> or you could just cash out and sit on a beach somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that, that's nice. Just too. do an exit. <laughs> yes. Find a new studio. Exactly. Yeah. Who was it, American McGee, that he's running the studio from his boat in Thailand? Like, uh, he's a designer of Alice Madness. He worked with EA, and now he's just doing his own thing off the boat, off the coast of Thailand. Sounds very chill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> living the dream, then, huh? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
I mean, really? you wouldn't you wouldn't stop making games, right? Like if you sell your company, like can no, cash you... out, like you would still make games. You would just make games somewhere else. And... <laughs> less, less stress. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the point with it being a passion industry, though, isn't it? So once you've yep. finished one project, it doesn't necessarily mean you want to just duck out of the industry entirely. It means you want to move on to the next one. So yeah, yeah. Hmm. Cool. Is there any final comments or any final questions someone wants to throw at Kaisa while you've got her here? From I don't know what. What's your your best tips for struggling indies? How will we succeed in our our quests? <laughs> That's an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I don't know if I'm like the right person to answer that. But I mean, it depends on uh, how you define success, I guess. What, how do you, what do you, how do you, when do you feel that you would have succeeded as an indie developer? I'm going to throw that one back. <laughs> Oh, was I it your stole question it from the, the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was my question initially, um, and I think it, it's it's actually a very good question. I'm saying it's good question because I asked it, but that's not what I mean. I think it, it I think it's good a question to ask yourself when you start any company. Like, what is success to you? Like, are you going to be the next I don't know notch? Are you going to you know have all the money in the world? Is that the goal, or is the goal to just be sustainable and have a good life? Like, what's the work-life balance uh, and so on? Uh, I don't want to dictate what the answer to this question is, but like, I just think that it's good to to think about this. Uh, and like, we always talk about success and we talk about failure, but like, is failure like if your game didn't sell, is that a failure, or did you just are you just still trying to find your voice? Like, what's um, how, how can we talk about? Success and failure maybe in a more sustainable way. Um. Yeah, it's very easy to get lost in the struggle of success when success is this vague thing that's, you know, something else is defined for you, but doesn't really resonate. So you, you will never achieve it because it doesn't resonate with you. So you don't feel well when you actually achieve it. Like, what if success is 200,000 copies sold? Will you feel better then? It's it's a personal thing. Mm. You, pr you probably want to make sure all the co-founders have the same idea of its success, though. Like if your idea of success is that you've got a decent work-life balance, but your co-founder wants to make millions and he's all right working, or he or she is all right working 70, 80 hours a week to make that happen, there might be some resentment there that builds between yeah. the two of you as you're competing on your own definition of success when you're ultimately making the same game. 100%, yeah. Yeah. 